word. God, please, we do ask that you would speak to our hearts and that you would teach us more about yourself and that you would be honored and worshiped now by the attention that we give to your word. We just ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So Philemon, we talked through this on Sunday mornings uh, just over a month ago. So we're not going to spend a huge amount of time here tonight, but we are going to go through it because it's the word of God and therefore it is living and it's active and it's profitable to teach us doctrine, to reprove us, to instruct us in righteousness so that we can be complete in the ministry that God has called us to. So it opens up. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. And grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So this book opens up. It's very similar to all of Paul's other letters. He gives the introduction, Who am I? I'm Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, Paul always, uh, almost always gives a little bit of a different uh, title to himself. A lot of times he'll call himself an apostle by the will of God. But in this letter, he calls himself a prisoner. And he's emphasizing to Philemon that he's not in a position to make demands from a physical point, but he is in a position of spiritual authority. And he says, grace to you and peace. We've said it before. We say it all the time. Every letter of Paul's, it's because grace and peace are given to us. They're given every time and they're given in that order because the peace of God always follows the grace of God. If you are trying to manufacture peace, you're trying to make the peace of men. And the peace of men will never satisfy you. But the peace of God is something you experience. It's not something you create. It's something you receive. And you only receive it by understanding the grace of God, by understanding that God has given to us salvation. He has given to us his son. He has given to us fellowship with him. And we have done nothing for it. And once we've received that grace, then peace just flows as a natural result of that. I mean, think about you know, if God has saved your soul, he's saved your eternal destiny. He hasn't just done that. He's, he's offered you life here in the present tense that's of a higher quality than you could ever have on your own. If all those things are true, then really any problem we're facing is, is not quite as big of a deal once those truths are, are anchored into our hearts. And so the grace of God always brings about the peace of God. And he says, I thank my God when I make a men- mention of you in my prayers. I'm praying for you. But I'm also thankful for you when I hear of your love and your faith. And then down in verse 6, he says, of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. And he says, verse 7, that we have great joy and consolation in your love. We have comfort, Paul says, in the character of Philemon. And this is important because remember, contextually here, Philemon has not been a Christian his whole life. Philemon has received the gospel as an adult. He's growing, but he's still you know, we're not sure exactly at what point he got saved and at what point this letter is written. But nevertheless, Philemon isn't necessarily somebody who's just been walking with the Lord for decades and decades. He's growing. But Paul says, we're comforted. We're in prison and we're comforted to hear of your faith 
and love and the fact that you're growing, that there are good things in you which are in Christ Jesus. The goodness of Christ is impacting your life and it's bringing goodness into your life. And because of that, Paul is going to feel free to make his request here in verse 8. So he says, so hold that thought, we'll get there. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be done by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. So the book kind of hinges on verse 8 when Paul says, therefore. Okay, so the first part, he says, hey, we're just blessed. We're blessed to know that you're growing. You're growing in Christ. You're growing in faith and in love. And therefore, I feel the liberty to ask you this. And so he asked Philemon to take back the man Onesimus. And we've, we've talked about the context of this book is that Paul in prison has met this man Onesimus and led him to the Lord only to realize that Onesimus is a runaway slave who's run away from Paul's friend Philemon. And so what Paul is doing now is Onesimus is growing in the Lord. Paul says, this guy is a huge help to me, but I want to see restoration where there's been a brokenness in the relationship. And so I'm sending him back to you. And understand that there's, you know, there's a context here that we need to not lose sight of, and that is the historical context of slavery in the ancient world. So for Paul to tell Onesimus, hey, you should go back to Philemon and ask for forgiveness, because as we kind of infer from the text, Onesimus had evidently robbed Philemon on his, uh, as part of his escape. Paul says, you need to go back and apologize for that. To Onesimus, that runs a very high risk of bringing him under the death penalty. And Paul tells Philemon, hey, you need to receive him back. And to Philemon, that runs a very high risk of losing face. It runs a very high risk of having to deal with somebody who you may not like. It runs a very high risk of if, you, if you're a slave owner. Uh, and we've talked about before that that kind of encompasses a broad variety of situations. But you risk uh, losing a ton of respect for the people who are working for you. You risk getting ripped off again by other people who say, well, hey, Onesimus got away with it. But Paul says that... Uh, he's writing this and he says I'm I'm asking you I'm not compelling you but I'm kind of compelling you and and that's sometimes it feels funny but sometimes there's an appropriate time to say hey you know what as your friend in the Lord I, I can't tell you what you need to do I can just tell you what you need to do right hey this guy wronged you I can't tell you that you need to forgive him that you need to quit being bitter but I can tell you that you need to forgive him and you need to quit being bitter Right? Because it is your choice. I can't force you to this. But I can tell you that, that you're at a, a turning point in your walk with the Lord. And this is really, I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago, and they said, why is Philemon in the Bible? Because it's, it's not really 
a doctrinal book, right? It, it, it's not like Romans where it's like, okay, so here's a, a, a fresh explanation of what it means to be saved by grace. It's not like Philippians where it's, okay, here's how we, how we walk through hard times in life. It's not like, you know, First or Second Thessalonians where it's, here's what we should be preparing for for the return of Christ. Philemon is just a letter from one friend to another. So why is it in the scripture? And I think it's in the scripture as a reminder that we all hit points in our walk with the Lord. Well, the Lord says, you know what? You're growing, and that's a great thing. And now it's time to take a next step, right? Hey, Philemon, you're growing. Praise the Lord. You're going in faith and in love, and there are good things in you which are in Christ Jesus, and uh, the hearts of the saints are being refreshed by you. So now it's time for you to forgive this guy. And that's kind of a different step, right? For, for all of us, there's, there's a point where we're walking with the Lord, we're growing with the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, you're, you're doing great. Keep going, keep doing what you're doing. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed by the fellowship that I'm having with you. But I also want to push you in this way. I, I want to, I want to, I really want you to grow, and this is holding you back. And so I want that to not be holding you back anymore. I want you to move past that. And that's a turning point that every Christian will have. And if you keep walking through them with the Lord, you will have multiples of them. But each one will get you progressively deeper with the Lord. And you will find more joy. You also learn uh, through the exercise of obedience how to walk in faith and say, you know what, I have, a, I have a history of walking with the Lord in obedience when it didn't make sense and he has always pulled through. The Lord has always shown himself faithful because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so really, what is the purpose of the book of Philemon? I think it's to, to prod each one of us and say, what is the thing? What is the thing that if God asked us to do, we would just kind of wish that he hadn't asked us to do, right? There, there's something, I'd say, I, would, I think I could venture to say in all of our hearts, there's something that the Lord is calling us to. And maybe it's quiet, maybe it's loud, maybe we haven't fully realized it yet, maybe it's, it, we're just completely blowing it off. But there's something that the Lord wants to call us to. Where he says, hey, let's go deeper in our relationship. And often, and, and we're kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, I should. Yeah, I totally should. I, and I will at some point. But, you know, it's, it's just not a great season for that. And, uh, you know, this, it's really just a bad time in my ministry, Lord. You know, like there are other things happening. I'm trying to stay focused. I'm trying to be, you know, goal-oriented. And God says, no, no, no. I don't give a rip about your goals. This is where you need to go. This is where you need to step in order to grow. And so that's where I think Paul's writing this to say, hey, Philemon, this is your point, right? Can you forgive this person and not just forgive them, but also receive them back into, the, into fellowship, right? And then so there's a lot of points that we could keep going on, but, you know, just sort of the, some of the big highlights. In verse 15, he says, perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother. Paul, Paul says, you know what, maybe... All those years when he thought that relationship was broken was a part of God's plan because God wanted to do something more than just turn Onesimus into a well-behaved employee or a well-behaved slave. God wanted to turn Onesimus into your brother. And so maybe then for each one of us, the situation that we say, yeah, you know what, God isn't going to work in that one anymore. That relationship's closed. Maybe. But maybe God is preparing something. Maybe God is laying a groundwork in that person's life 
that you know nothing about. And the question is not, what are you going to do about their life? The question is, what are you going to do about your life? Philemon chose, during the whole time that Onesimus was away, to be growing in love and in faith and in the good things which were in Christ Jesus. He grew to the point that Paul, as his pastor and mentor, said, you know what, I think you're ready to take this step, and I'm going to exhort you and give you sort of a friendly punch in the arm and say, this is where your relationship needs to go with the Lord. Philemon grew to that point where Paul could say, I know this isn't going to be easy, but I'm asking you this. And it's sort of the thrill of the book is that we're not told exactly what happens. It's just the letter. We have a very good guess, though, that Philemon did accept Onesimus back because the letter's been preserved, right? If Philemon got the letter and said, that's dumb, he probably wouldn't have kept the letter and passed it on to the church for 2,000 years. If Onesimus got back and Philemon said, no, just, just shoot the guy or kill the guy, they didn't really shoot him as much in Rome. But um, it probably wouldn't have been preserved, you know, like as Paul's, you know, convincing letter for why to not be bitter towards people. So we have the presumption, I think very confidently, that Philemon and Onesimus are restored. But what about us? The book is still kind of open-ended. And if we're reading the book ourselves, what is, your, what is our story? What is, the, what is the turning point? And what is, what is your legacy with the Lord going to be? Is it, hey, I walked up to this amazing opportunity and I looked at it and I said, that looks really hard and I walked away. And some Christians do that. And they can still go to heaven and they can still be saved and it's still a pathetic life. And some Christians say, you know what? This does not make sense, but God is calling me to it. And so I'm going to go. I'm, I'm going to vault off the edge of whatever he's calling me to. And all of a sudden, you get this amazing experience of fellowship with the Lord at a deeper level than you could imagine. So verse 21, Paul says, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you. Paul says, I know you. I know you're growing. I'm confident that you're going to do this. Knowing that you would do even more than I say, but meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, that, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. A power first, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul loves to start and end his books with grace because if you are starting with the grace of God and you're ending with the grace of God and, and you can comprehend at least as much as is humanly possible what that actually means, you can comprehend the depth of what God's grace has given you, then forgiving somebody else is not that big of a deal. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying proportionately, the worst thing you could ever have to forgive another human being for is nothing compared to what Christ has forgiven us, right? The gap is not even comparable. And so that's, that's the book of Philemon in a very, very tight nutshell. But it starts and ends with grace because the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient to comfort us, to guide us, and to lead us through whatever God calls us into. And so if you're growing with the Lord, that is awesome. Keep going. If God is calling you to something, if he's calling you to do something, to, to restore something, or to step out in a specific direction, or to repent of something, or whatever else, can I just encourage you to do it? You will never regret trusting the Lord. You will always regret trusting your own instincts. So trust the Lord and let the grace of Christ be with you in that. So that wraps up the book of Philemon. Now we jump to the book of Hebrews. And the thrill of teaching the book of Hebrews is that I'm way out of my depth teaching this book. 
but so is every other pastor who's ever taught this book. So it's kind of like a, this, you know, you listen to other pastors teach and, and you realize everybody stresses out over teaching the book of Hebrews. So it's kind of a fun brotherhood of losers. Um, but anyways, when dad gets to it, he won't have any problems teaching it. But that's a different story. The book of Hebrews is a distinct book in the New Testament, okay, for, for a couple reasons. One, it's anonymous. We do not know the human author. We do know who wrote the book of Hebrews, though, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through a man or a woman to write the book of Hebrews. And there's a lot of great theories out there about who wrote it. Most people think it was probably Paul uh, because a lot of the arguments are very similar to other arguments that Paul makes. Uh, Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we can tell, was a friend with Timothy and had a very deep understanding of Jewish culture. So... A lot of people say, oh, it was probably Paul. And he would have left it anonymous because he was trying to reach the Jewish people and they never listened to him and maybe he was trying to just kind of slide this book in. Other people say, oh, it's, no, it's not Paul, it's Luke because uh, Luke was a Gentile but he would have traveled with Paul, he would have heard all of Paul's arguments and if you read it in Greek, so I'm told because I don't read Greek, the letter of Hebrews is written in a very high grammatical style like a very uh, well-educated Greek style. And Paul writes very casual Greek. He writes profound thoughts, but he's super chill about it, right? If Paul was writing in English today, he would have way too many commas, right? And he would be the guy who puts the word like in an actual printed book. You know, the grace of God is like awesome. And whoever wrote the book of Hebrews is not doing that. So it could be that Paul is just writing a totally different style because he had sort of a different approach here. Uh, the style in Greek is very, very similar to Luke and Acts. And so some people say, no, Luke wrote it. And some people say, no, Silas wrote it or Apollos wrote it or, or whoever else. And I say that just really to let you know that anytime somebody confidently tells you who wrote the book of Hebrews, they are out of their league. But the principle, though, I think is, is stands, which is the Holy Spirit wrote it. And if an obedient person was moved by God to write the book of, the, of Hebrews through the power of the Holy Spirit, they did the work of God and they experienced the blessing of God for it. And we don't have to have our name on something in order to be used by the Holy Spirit, right? You don't have to be remembered by earthly standards for what God did through you. But what God did through you should be remembered. There's a difference, right? And so I have no idea who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's kind of fun to speculate, but it's also a waste of time. So we're not going to do too much more of that. But the book is interesting because it is written to a specific context, a specific group of people, and if we don't understand that, it makes the book really hard to read, okay? So the book of Hebrews is written to the, anybody want to guess? Hebrews. You guys are so stoic. But anyways, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews specifically in the first century church. And uh, you got to understand the context, and this is really important because to be a Jew, a Jewish Christian in the first century was a, not just a, a persecution challenge, but a logistical challenge. Uh, if you were a man and you converted to Christianity from Judaism, your wife could divorce you, no problem. Uh, you could lose your job, no problem. Your family would hold a funeral and declare that you were dead. And like they, were not, they would not acknowledge your existence if you bumped into them. And so imagine... You know, especially for a culture that's very family-oriented and tradition-oriented, to all of a sudden have lost all of that. You've lost your wife, you've lost your income, you've lost every friend you've ever had your entire life. 
And there would be a temptation on the part of the Jewish Christians to say, you know, maybe we could just kind of fake the Judaism thing. Or maybe if Jesus came to fulfill the Jewish law, we can just kind of keep the Jewish law and have Jesus Christ. And, and the author is going to write this book basically to refute that idea. And so he's writing the book to a Jewish audience. And if you want to sum up the book of Hebrews as simply as possible, here it is. Jesus is better. And the author is just going to go through all this list of Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament law. He's better than Moses. He's better than anything else. And basically the book is just all of these different arguments explaining who Jesus is as a reminder to the church, to specifically to the Jewish church, hey, do not go back. God called you out of something. He called you to something. Don't walk backwards from what God has called you to. Now, contextually within that then, the book is written from a Eastern perspective, okay? We live in the Western world. We like linear thought processes, all right? You know, if, you have, if you're gonna write a, a college paper, the purpose of this paper is to demonstrate that, you know, water when boiled turns to steam. And so you start with like point A, and then you're going to create point B from that, and then you're going to create point C from that, and then you're going to have your conclusion. And you can just draw out the whole train of thought in one line. And it's beautiful. It, it's a wonderful thing, right? Like it's, we, I, can, I can look at it, and I know where we're going, where we're going to wind up. So nice. But the Eastern world doesn't see that as a valuable way of giving out information. And the Eastern world gives information more like changing a tire on a car, okay? How many people have changed a tire? Just so I know. How many people have not changed a tire? Okay, okay. So this will work. So you get a tire on a car. You get a flat tire, you jack the car up, you take off the flat tire. You get a new tire. You're at the tire store, you wait four hours, they give you the new tire, it's time to put the tire on. If your tire has six bolts, and you're going to bolt the tire onto the axle of the car. You've got six nuts, six bolts. They need to go together. You're not going to put it on bolt one, two, three, four, five, six. Because if you do that, your tire will go on a little bit off center. And you'll start driving down the road and your tire will And it's an awkward ride. Okay? It's, just, it's not a good way to do it. When you put on a tire, if you have six bolts, you're going to put on bolt one and then bolt four and then bolt two, and then bolt five, and then bolt three, and then bolt six. And what that's going to do is that's going to center the whole tire so the tire is stable on the axle of the car, and you get a smooth ride. That's how Eastern thinking works, okay? So the book of Hebrews is point one, point four, point two, point five, point three, point six. and by the way, well, we'll just, just tighten it all up while we're at it. Let's go back, point one, point four, point two, point five, point three, point six. That's how the book feels, Okay, and so we're going to get into the book, and you're going to think, this guy has no idea where he is going. No, no, he has a very clear idea where he's going. He's putting a tire on the car, and the tire is, Jesus Christ is better. But he's got all these different bolts that he's going to put on. He's going to stagger them out so that he gets a nice, centered truth. And so if you're reading it, and you're like, this has, I have no idea where he's going, keep the central theme in mind, which is Jesus Christ is better. And then just back up, read the chunk we're in, and say, okay. This is just one of those bolts, right? We are not going A, B, C here. We're going through the bolts. So, chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, 
who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had, put him by him, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We'll pause there. So the author of Hebrews says, okay, God at various times and in various ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that's true. If you read the Old Testament, and, and just sort of as another heads up, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews can be very confusing. So uh, if, you, if you reach a part where you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about, uh, go back. He'll reference something, go back and find it in the Old Testament, read about it, listen to a teaching on it, because the whole book is, he's making an argument by pulling from the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament and greater than the Jewish system of religion. So he says, God spoke in various ways at various times through the prophets. And that's true. If you think about the Old Testament, God spoke through a burning bush. God spoke through a donkey. God spoke by having the sun move backwards. At one point, he spoke by having the sun freeze in the sky for a night and a day so that Joshua could have uh, the victory he needed and God demonstrated his glory that way. But he also spoke through the prophets. And he had the prophets do all kinds of various things in various ways. Isaiah was told to walk around and prophesy naked, which is just an awkward ministry, right? Ezekiel is told to create a fire out of human dung and make this special bread out of all these specific grains and, and cook it. And he says, God, I'm, I want to be obedient, but I'm really having a hard time with this. And God says, fine, I'll be gracious. You can use cow dung. Um, and incidentally, somebody came along and, and put all the bread together and called it Ezekiel bread. And I swear, I am, I am positive Whoever is, is selling it as Ezekiel bread is not cooking it over cow dung. So you're not getting the real thing. You're getting ripped off. But God has spoken in various ways to the prophets, but the, the writer says he has now spoken to us by his son. And even, actually, if you read it, uh, verse 2, by his son, the word his is in italics. And if you remember, when you see a word in italics, it means it's not there in the original Greek, and the translators are putting it in there to give us a better sentence flow in English. But so you could actually truly, literally translate this as he has in these last days spoken to us by son. God is speaking, like, what language does God speak? He speaks Jesus. He speaks the language of son. The language of the son of God is the language by which God speaks to us. So if you want to hear the voice of God, you need to get to know the person and the character of Jesus Christ. Everything that is in Jesus Christ is in God the Father. Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, it's, it's the Trinity, which we struggle to understand as humans. They all have separate roles and separate functions within the Godhead, but they are all equally God. And so if you understand something about the character of Jesus Christ to be true, then that is true of God the Father. And it is true of God the Holy Spirit. If you understand something about the character of God the Father to be true, it is true about Jesus Christ, and it is true about the Holy Spirit. And so that's why you can never refer to the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament like they're two separate gods, because they are not. They are one and the same. And so the author's making very clear that God is, he has spoken by the prophets, and now he's speaking to us by his son. And that's not to diminish the role of the prophets. It's to emphasize the role of the son, who is, he's going to go on, and kind of, you know, if the idea is Jesus is better, the author is going to just give us a couple fast bullet points. He is the heir 
of all things. It, it doesn't mean that he's, it means that all things belong to him. Through whom also he made the world. All things belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is also responsible for the creation of all things. And who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So Jesus was in the full glory of God the Father and he's the express image. Okay, he, he's in all the fullness of his character. He is the same as God the Father and upholding all things by the word of his power. His words have the power to hold everything together when he had by himself purged our sins. Not by himself mostly with a little bit of our help. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right there in that opening paragraph, you have the entire gospel. And that is that Jesus Christ is self-sufficient and self-contained and he himself has paid the price for all of our sins. He has completed the work and he has sat back down. He was in the full glory with God the Father. He left and came down to earth paid the price for our sins, and he is now back in the full glory. And so when we look and understand the character of Jesus Christ, we're not looking at, at a God who is halfway there, or a God who has fallen, or a God who is, uh, you know, what any, any one of the cults around the world will, will try and make him out to be of something less than God. We are looking at a God who has completed an entire circle of salvation and is now back in full glory. Verse 4 having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So now the author is going to go on uh, pretty much to the end of the chapter and make the point that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. So he already said he's speaking to us now through the son instead of the prophets. So there's an idea that he's better than the prophets and we'll get back to that later on in the book. But now he's going to talk about Jesus Christ is better than the angels. For to which of the angels, verse 5, did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And, and we're going to just, while we're discussing this whole Eastern book in an Eastern context and I'm pinballing all over the place, um, he's going to give us just a ton of quotes from the Old Testament. All right? So he says, to which of the angels did he, God the Father, ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God never called an angel his son. And again, uh, still in verse 5, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So the author says, hey, you know what? God has never called an angel his son. Never. Nowhere in the Old Testament has God called an angel his son. And in fact, in, let's, where is it at? Verse 6. In, Deuter in Psalm 97, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. God does never, he never compares his son to an angel. He tells the angels to worship the son. Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And that's important because cults, false religions love to reduce Jesus to just a really awesome angel, right? I think uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses say he's the brother of Michael, the archangel. The Mormons say he's the brother of Lucifer. And, and it really becomes the, the linchpin for is something a cult or not, is does it take Jesus Christ as less than he's revealed to be? If you try and make Jesus Christ out to be an angel, you're going against the words of God. Because God says, you're my son, today I've begotten you. And he tells the angels, hey, you worship my son. So he's making a point here. Verse 7. And of the angels, 
He, that's God the Father, says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. He's saying God, God uses the angels. Don't, don't misunderstand this. The angels are incredibly powerful and they're beautiful parts of God's creation and they have an incredible role to fulfill. But they are not Jesus Christ. So he says, he makes his angels spirits and, and they're his ministers. They do the work of God. Verse eight, but to the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The author says, you gotta understand. Jesus Christ is not an angel. And he's making the point, and just in case we, have, we are missing the point, he's gonna keep making the point because Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And verse 10 you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, including the angels. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Our whole world is dying, right? We, we feel it personally, but our, our sun is burning out. Okay, our earth is wearing down. Things are, things are on, on a cosmic scale, things are falling apart. Okay? And you say, what is holding this thing together? Well, that's Jesus Christ. But everything is, is winding down except for Christ. Verse 13, but to which of the angels, have you noticed he's kind of on this kick here? Jesus Christ is better than the angels. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Angels are wonderful beings. They're wonderful parts of God's creation. They are not Jesus Christ. And right there in chapter one, you pretty much know everything you know about angels in the entire Bible. That's like pretty much the whole summary. There's a couple verses in Daniel that tell us that, um, that there was an angel who went to war with a, a demonic force who's called the Prince of Persia. And we know that they're sent as messengers from God. And we know two of their names. Well, three of their names technically because you could, says Lucifer, Satan is a fallen angel. So we know the name, of, we know Satan, Michael, and Gabriel. That's pretty much the whole thing. That, that's it right there. Scriptures do not give us a whole lot of uh, angelic awareness. We're, we're, we are... We know they're real. We know the spiritual world is very real and it's very powerful. But we also know that God says, you know what, that's not really your, your point of concern. Your point of concern is who is Jesus Christ and what are you doing about it? Because Jesus Christ is better than the angels. If you're worried about, you know, getting your angel hyped up and ready to be on your side or, or talking down the demonic en entity that, that's coming against you, back up. Go back to Jesus Christ, right? James and James, I think it's chapter three. I'm gonna say it's chapter three and I hope I'm right. It says, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee to you. That's, that's spiritual warfare summed up in its entirety. You submit to God and then you resist the devil and then he flees. Not because you're awesome but because Christ is awesome. The scriptures don't give us, you know, we don't need to figure out the name of, of the demon who needs to be cast out. We don't need to have these weird rituals. You just need to submit to God and resist the devil. And, and that's not to deny the power of the angelic world. Chapter four, I failed. But that's okay. You guys still like me, I think. But um, 
It's not to deny the reality of the angelic world. Okay, I, I've, uh, it's, it's, it's intense. It's impressive stuff. But you know what? As, as much as you can have amazing testimonies of watching uh, you know, the power of angelic warfare or the, the, you know, the, sort of the intimidation of watching demonic spirits manifest themselves because they are real, as much as all of that is very real and a very real part of the Christian experience, Jesus Christ is better, right? If, you, if you're worried about not comprehending enough about well, do I know how to cast out the, you know, the, the demon of whatever or, or this demon or, or whatever? You know what? You submit to God, resist the devil. Know Jesus Christ because he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the fullness of the Godhead. So why, why, why set yourself up for anything less than that? Right? That, so that's Christ is better than the angels. Chapter 2. Therefore, if Christ is better than the angels, therefore, if Christ is better than, uh, than the words of the prophets, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us, by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So this guy follows up the thought. He says, okay, therefore, if what I just said is true, and if it's the word of God, it's true. So, therefore, because that is true, because Christ is greater than the angels, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. And he makes a point here. He says, look, the messages that the angels brought came to pass. The angels, he, he's not making a point here about the weakness of angels. He's making a point about the greatness of Christ. He says, you know, when the angel comes and gives a message, it's going to happen. The angels are incredibly powerful. But Christ is more so. So he says, we need to not neglect, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the idea here is he's trying to kind of broaden our minds. Okay, not by saying, oh, well, angels are smaller than you think they are. He's saying, no, no, picture all the power of the angelic and the demonic realm. And now know that as much as you can't comprehend that, you go beyond that. And that's the power of Christ. You don't, you know, you don't, don't, don't try and reduce something to help you better understand the power of God, right? Expand it and then just know that you have to expand it beyond that. He says, angels are, are sick. They are the real deal. And Jesus Christ is that much better. So we got to be careful. If Jesus Christ is that much more powerful, think about the power of the angelic world in, uh, in the time of Hezekiah the king of Judah. The king of Assyria came against the city of Jerusalem and he mocked the name of God. And it says that that night an angel went down and killed 185,000 Assyrian troops. One angel. We don't even have his name. Right? Like angel 72B just went down and killed 185,000 Assyrians. Jesus Christ, the night, of his, uh, the night before his crucifixion, said, don't you know that I can call down 12 legions of angels? 
A legion is 6,000 troops. So 72,000 angels who can all kill 185,000 men in one night. You do the math, that's more than the entire world population by a mm, pretty massive amount. The angels are intensely powerful, but Christ is more so. So we're not saved by the angels. Christ is that much greater and he's offering us salvation. How much more seriously should we take that offer? How much more earnestly should we pay attention when, you know, when Jesus Christ is moved by something? Whether he's moved with compassion or whether he's stirred up to anger by watching the hypocrisy of religion. We should take those things and say, wow, this is a big deal. When he says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That's a big deal. When he says, if anyone wants to come after me, he needs to deny himself. That's a big deal deal and the author says we got to be careful that we don't drift isn't that interesting we're given this massive truth that we cannot even get our heads around and the author says yeah now with that don't slip away and sometimes a, you know a massive truth you think wow that's so amazing I'll, I'll never lose sight of that no you'll lose sight of it our ability to just sort of drift is, is incredible right and, and we don't appreciate this quite as much because if you, if you live near an ocean, the ocean metaphors work great. And, you know, and just, you go in the ocean and you're paddling around and all of a sudden you're down the beach a mile. But we kind of understand big hills, right? If you put your car in neutral at the top of Hanover Hill, you're going to get down to the bottom of Hanover Hill, right? Um, you know, maybe a little faster, maybe a little slower depending on the weight of your car. But if you just put that car in neutral and chill... You might even be steering. You might feel like you're in control. But if you're just drifting, you're going somewhere. And if you're not careful, it's going to very quickly turn very ugly. Right? I've been on a kick of, this is totally stupid. None of you care even remotely. But I've been on a kick of counting how many curves are on the hills in town. Hanover Hill has five. Michigan Hill has 12, for whatever that's worth. That's a lot of curves to be coasting down. If you're drifting, you start drifting. Wow, you know, okay, we're drifting a little left. No, a little right. You know, hey, we're hanging on to this truth. Well, you know, we'll hang on to another truth. You know, we're just, it's, it's, it's okay. It's all relative. All of a sudden, you're going off the guardrails. Because you just start drifting. It's just neutral. I got my foot on the brake. I could stop anytime I want to. Yeah, but you're drifting. Right? So he says, hey, it's a big truth. And we need to pay earnest heed that we do not drift away. Verse 5. He says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And we're going to, well, we'll go all the way down through verse 9. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone." The idea here is that Jesus is better than, or he's greater than, the distance between us and him. Right? So, so take in your mind 
Okay, how far out do you have to extrapolate the idea of, of power to try and comprehend an angel? And know that it's somewhere beyond that is the power of Jesus Christ. And now, he says, picture in your mind how far Christ came to become a human being. One of the, you know, the so he's greater than the gap. He is better. He's better than the divide that separates us. The best metaphor for this Actually, probably not the best metaphor, but the metaphor that Ken Graves uses, and if you don't know who Ken Graves is, you should at least do yourself a favor and listen to him once. Uh, I don't recommend him all the time because he's like one of the best Bible teachers on earth, but he's also one of the worst rabbit trailers on earth. And so his Bible teaching is great, but when he goes off track, you have no idea where he's going. But Ken Graves makes the point. He says, imagine you're walking along the road and you see a road-killed possum. And like all men, you know, you walk over and you flip it over with your toe. And then, you, you know, you smell the gas is coming up and it starts to deflate and, you know, the teeth are showing and the eyes are gone and there's maggots, right? And they're, they're, they're crawling. And then it's like the, the possum looks like it's moving because there's so many maggots. But it's not moving. It's dead. But it's, it's covered in maggots. Now, imagine if you could reducing yourself or reducing your son to the point where he could become a maggot and live with the maggots and consider himself a son of maggots and, 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 and actually care enough about the maggots to die for them. And he says, now that's a bad metaphor because here's the deal. The distance between you and a maggot is great, but it is measurable. The distance between us and Christ is not. You, you can factor kind of down what would it take to get a human being and, and you know, what, what, is, what is getting chopped out of the equation to reduce to a maggot. You cannot factor, you cannot comprehend the distance that Jesus Christ crossed to go from glory with God the Father to humanity among us. And he says, Jesus Christ is greater than that. The point of this book, written to people who are struggling with, do we go back into just keeping religion? To make, a, to make friends. He says, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ is better. He is better than the divide. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. It was fitting for him, he says, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And the idea is not that Jesus was imperfect and needed to suffer in order to be perfected. The idea is that Jesus' sufferings demonstrated his perfection. And he's saying it was appropriate for God, and, and, and don't get... You always got to be careful when you start talking about the Trinity. Don't think that like God is forcing Jesus Christ to do this thing against his will. Because Jesus Christ is God, and God the Father is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. So in unison, the three members of the Godhead who are all one understood that it was appropriate for Jesus Christ to suffer. Not just to come and reduce himself to humanity, but to actually suffer among humanity as a demonstration of his perfection. Verse 14, Inasmuch then... As the children, back, well, back up. And not just to, to demonstrate his perfection, but then also he makes the point to then call us his 
friends. A God who can reduce himself that intensely and suffer and then die does not owe us anything. And he particularly does not owe us his friendship, but he offers it to us. And that's why the author is saying, hey, we got to pay, pay heed that we don't drift, that we don't neglect this. So verse 14, sorry. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So he's making a point. Okay, Jesus is greater than the divide, but what did he do when he crossed the divide? He didn't just save us. He didn't just call us friends. Jesus, you know, remember... Remember, Jesus is better than the angels. He reduced himself below that point. The human, and, and we can't even comprehend what that is, okay? How do you somehow bottle up your glory when you're God? I have no idea. It, it's, it's beyond our ability to understand, but he did it. He made himself fully man and fully God at the same time. And what did he do then? He defeated death. He destroyed the power of death. He destroyed the devil. Do you realize Jesus destroyed the devil as a man? As a man who was fully man and fully God. But there's, a, there's an idea here, okay? Jesus is better than the divide. He's better than the angels. And he's actually now taken that power and demonstrated to us that through him, as men and women, we can have victory over the angels. We can't say, oh, well, sure, he could do it because he was Jesus. No, no, no. He was a man. He reduced himself to the place of being fully man and fully God. But as a man, he destroyed death. And, and the author here is making a point. He did it so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. The job of a priest is to bring people to God, to help them come into the presence of God. Jesus Christ did that, and he did it as a man. Because he wanted us to understand and comprehend that he is sufficient and that he has crossed that divide and he's offering us the chance to go back over it with him. But it is through him. But as men and women, we have that. We have that availability because in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus is a, uh, he's a like-kind exchange on the cross. God did not send an angel to die for our sins because an angel cannot attain to the fullness of glory. God wanted us to be his friends and so he sent God himself to bring us to that level of holiness. He wasn't interested in bringing us to the level of holiness and glory that the angels have. He wanted to bring us to a different level because he is better than the angels. He is better than the prophets. Do you understand this? He wanted to come down this far because he wanted to bring us up that high and he didn't do it because we are awesome he did it because he's a good god he did it to to simply revel in his glory and his power he did it for the excitement of of earning praise and so the author says okay if jesus is 
better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the divide that separated us from him. He's better than our sin. He's, he's, he's so much better that in his reduced state, that, that as a man, whatever, however, however concentrated or however bottled up the glory of God was, as a man in that state, he was able to defeat the devil. He defeated death in, in the most concentrated form really imaginable because we are like the most pathetic things ever, right? Like we are. We're, we're, we're worthless. We are like the lamest creatures ever. We have no teeth, no fangs, no fur. We have, no, we have lame eyesight, lame hearing. Like we don't do anything. And Jesus Christ, as one of us, demonstrated his power over the devil, right? It wasn't like, oh my gosh, no, we, we got to call out, you know, pull out all the stops and, and send in the reserves and we got to have plan A, B, C, and D in case something goes wrong. It was, no, I can reduce myself to a human being and I can still defeat you because I'm that powerful. I'm that big. I want to, and I, as someone that big who owes us nothing, he says, I want you to be my friends. I want you to have fellowship with me. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this to say, hey, don't worry about religion. Worry about being in fellowship with the God who wants you to be his friend. And, and in that, pay heed. Be earnest. Be vigilant. Do not slide. Right? And it, it ties in beautifully with Philemon because do not slide. If a God that great calls you to something that feels hard, he can probably get you through it. He, he's actually... He's very capable because he is better. Jesus Christ is better, right? So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that is in it to teach us, the power to draw us into your presence, to conform us to your image. God, we are blown away, not just that you would create us, not just that you would come down, that you would offer to save us, that you would become like us, but that you would then desire to exalt us, to, to give us actual positions of honor, to give us opportunities to serve you. God, it's, it's beyond anything we deserve. And yet you did it for your own glory, for, for your own sake, because you are an amazing God. And so we thank you. And we pray that we would earnestly give heed to these things that we would be fixated on Jesus Christ, that we would not hold back for fear of the world or fear of our own pride or self-righteousness or anything else, God. We want to be people in pursuit of you. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our High Priest, the one who is better than all else. Amen? Amen.